0: Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden.
1: And Lauren Wetmore. I'm super excited to talk to you about Leolia Leo Shragi today.
0: Yeah, this has been a few months in the making and we have just been like riding on a river of the most beautiful communications from them. So I'm excited to hear about the conversation that you two held.
1: Yes, Leoli is a great email writer.
0: Yes, they're just, yeah, they're blanketed with intimacy. It's it's very special. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a tiny bit stressful. <laughs> so who is this person?
1: So Leoli is an artist, curator, and writer based in Mbandawa, a.k.a. Alice Springs, in Aranda Territory in Central Australia. And I don't usually do this, but I think that... Um, a really well written bio line is so unusual that I really want to celebrate this one. Mm-hmm. So, on Leili's website, it says Ia intervenes in display territories to center indigenous kin constellations, sensual and spoken languages, and ceremonial political practices. It's mm-hmm. just perfect. Mm.
0: So which, oh, sorry, I I've, I've just <laughs> fell into the stars.
1: So which text of... <laughs> want to pick that one up. Okay. <laughs> just
0: let me lie down.
1: So which text of Layulis
0: did you discuss?
1: So the text we discussed is Tanata Vasa from issue 136 of C Magazine, which was guest edited by Peter Morin and Tanya Willard for Bush Gallery. And they themselves are a decolonial and non-institutional initiative rooted in Indigenous knowledge and production, uh, mainly creating dialogue, practice, and engagement around how existing structures of the art world can be transformed by Indigenous knowledge.
0: Yeah, Bush Gallery has an amazing reputation, just to say, and chooses projects, I think, sparingly and with like tremendous intention. Was it through C Magazine that you discovered this text then?
1: Yeah, so I was reading this issue, and I got to the exhibition review section, and you see this picture of the most beautiful grandmother sitting, working away in her studio, and it just the kind of joy on her face really struck me. And from there, reading the article uh, that Leili wrote about Leili's grandmother and about her artistic practice um, was just very affecting. And Mm -hmm. it was important to me to talk to Leili again about about this text. And it actually turned out that um, Leili's grandmother has passed away since this piece was published Mm. and it's particularly heart-wrenching as there's a line at the end of the piece in Samoan which translates as I love you mother you will not be forgotten we will not forget our country Mm. the text is very much a tribute to this woman's practice um Mm. but it's also really interesting that it exists in this section of the of the publication that is about exhibition reviews
0: yeah, yeah. Spend any time in the review section as you know designated by so many publications, and it can be very dry marching. But it's a review that reaches out to you from that what can be moribund section of any given magazine. It's one that asks for your presence by by insisting on its own, and at the same time as being you know provocative in that I think invitation to intimacy. It's also really daring to write art criticism about your own grandmother's work.
1: <laughs> yeah, for real. It takes a pretty pretty brave person to <laughs> engage with your grandmother on that level. We talk about that impossibility of being critical of your grandmother, mm-hmm. but also kind of larger discussions of the Pleasures and also difficulties of centering personal histories and Mm non-canonical practices in this kind of, uh, yeah, in this kind of publication, in this kind of section of a publication, but Mm -hmm. also in the art world and art writing in general. And to speak about what you were saying about the text kind of requiring something of you or coming at you with a requirement, Um, there's also this element of it being written both in English and Samoan.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, again, this doesn't seem to be something we've brought a lot of invention to in the art publishing world, how to um, allow for multiple languages to sort of swim through a text without requiring of the writer code switching uh, or... Mm -hmm. Um, another kind of jamming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Leoli speaks eloquently and passionately about that exact issue and has even developed new words within the Samoan language for things like curator to sort of build an understanding of these roles from an indigenous perspective and using language to build that perspective and to bring it into a a sort of larger lexicon. So, yeah, I think it's an incredibly important piece to start that conversation from. Mm -hmm. And Le is, uh, you know, very versed in this conversation, Mm -hmm. um, and brings a lot of intelligence to
0: it. Mm -hmm. I, I should mention by the way, that, uh, Maybe as another preparatory note, you, you typically after I've interviewed someone, I'm emailing you and our editor with apologies about the stream of sound-breaking laughter you're about to have to endure <laughs> as we edit. But <laughs> in this particular instance, you you reached out and you said that both you and Leoli had some of the strangest, most joyful laughs, <laughs>, laughs throughout the episode. Yes. And you were girding us for it. <laughs>
1: Lily like, has this incredibly um, kind of soft mm. voice, and then breaks into the most delightful <laughs> laughter. It was mm-hmm. just, yeah, it was such a delight. And I know that uh, from from our editor and from you that I also have a a particular kind of laugh. So it's it's a bit like dueling pianos between <laughs> us two, I think. <laughs> but I want to say that that. Um, yeah, on that note, I mean, Leoli is the first person that we've spoken to who talks about taking joy from writing. Mm. That question that we always do in the the rapid fire section of "Do you like writing?" Leoli said immediately, "Yes," and said, "I'll quote here that time and place and capacity is a gift."
0: Here is Leuli Ashraghi reading Tanata Vasa in Sea Magazine, Winter 2018.
2: I'll start. It's like a um, land recognition statement as well. Tangata Vasa, Tangata Nu'u, peoples of the lands, peoples of the country, peoples of the villages, peoples of the cultures. Peoples of the oceans, Tangatava Sa. fu ese ese is an enduring Samoan expression that signifies that we have gathered together from different parts of the forest. O our clans. O ainga, our families. O tupunga, our ancestors. O Fanua, our guardian spirits. O suli, descendants. O atua our kin animals, and birds, and plants. Omonga, monga, our mountains. O vaitafe, our rivers. O ma'umanga, our food gardens. O matafanga, our beaches. O are our temples. Our lands and waters shared amongst clans for the use of all, disputes, and all. All this in the ancestral time of the Lupe Pigeon's heyday, before plantation and missionary colonial rule in the 1800s, destroyed Lupe Pigeon numbers, and our own, with hunting, abduction into forced labor, and blackbirding into overseas slavery, and introduced diseases, decimated our numbers, all across the ocean. Before we moved offshore in vast numbers, before our coral and fish boiled in high temperature waters, before nuclear testing and overfishing poisoned our primary ancestor, sacred, far-reaching, undulating relational space, who cares for us yet. Before the body, sex, spirit shaming of the missionaries and Eurocentric knowledge systems imported into our language, culture, and outlook were unleashed to destroy us one by one, long after the original violators from Europe had passed on to the spirit world. Before we resisted and fought back. Before we remade ourselves in our ancestors' image for our own indigenous, diasporic, and archipelagic resurgence. I know this every time I stand in our ancestral belonging. And recently, when I spent a few days on sanctuary island Namua, to the southeast of our main island, Upolu, there debris installations wash up every day from far across the sea. There, pea, flying foxes, laumei turtles, paa, crabs, and manu birds rule the air, land and sea. There, humans only spend a little time at a time, and this decentering of human centrism is salvatory to me and my kin there. The smell of the sea on the breeze, the humidity and rain, gliding of leaves in the forest, nearing creatures of the sky, remind us that this is not only our home, that earth-centered ways of knowing are active yet. What is a city but a collection of villages? What is an aesthetic experience but a passage of moments? All lands and waters are known and inhabited by living beings, sometimes including us humans. All cities are built on still sacred lands and waters. In unceded Kulin Nation territory, where I mainly live and work, the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung clans of inner North Melbourne, and their relations, the Wadawurrung, Tangwurrung, and Jajawurrung, clans further west and north, are in sovereign resurgence right now. Their oratory, performing, and visual languages are expressed with power. The settler colonial city of Melbourne, or Port Phillip, was built over their territory, but has not subsumed them. Rather, a rebalancing is afoot where their cultures and those of other First Nations and global Indigenous cultures are being centred in accordance with protocol and respect. The city is also country, to amplify the concept of First Peoples in Australia. As elders teach us uninvited guests in every Welcome to Country ceremony, country will nurture you if you respect it, and if you do not harm the children of Bunjil. All of the mineral resources used to create the built environment also come from the very lands and waters we are indebted to for our lives, so country is really all around us. 90 rotations of La Sun, and many more of Goddess Masina, Moon. Indigenous matriarchy heals and binds. In my Ainga, we call grandma, great-grandma, mom, auntie, cousin, mom across generations. My grandma has looked after many generations of children, nieces and nephews, from our extensive family and those needing love and a home for decades. Every day, amongst all the affairs she is managing in our 40-member household, not including all of us in the diaspora, she has a cup of tea or fresh lemonade, some fruit, sets up her weaving space in the living room, primes the Falla Pandanis lengths, fashions, scary-slash-amazing dolls with cube heads and siapo Barcloth attire, rectangular handbags with falah squares and triangles or the trochus shells and siapo lining the inside. She shows my younger cousins how to spin the falah into a tight length to be used as a strap on the bags, my aunts and older cousins watching on and weaving their own magic. Tina Matua has created Afa, coconut senate, and falah dresses for couture competitions in our archipelago, her creations, the models, and her glowing in the local paper and in our memory. The sounds of our village, the soundtrack to Tinamatua's daily practice. Chickens scuttling along, a tarago van slowing down behind an old rusty and faithful pickup along the village road weaving around our ancestral Mount Vaya. Children screaming with glee slash hurt around the open air and closed air houses of all our relations. The melodies of church choir practice, the water flowing when it does in Loimatoa Paula Creek from our ancestors to us and the excitement of young people able to forsake duties and homework for some volleyball under the big trees before dinner. Last December, we celebrated Tinamatua's 90th birthday in the hall of the Popota Girls' School, which she attended as a young girl, just on the main roadside of our village. I remember the officiating of my orator uncle, Leuli, the local pastor, the organizational prowess of my mother, Sonne, and aunts, Sally, Elisabetta, and Sualua the tribute songs performed by cousins living in Aotearoa and Samoa, the classics in our language playing on the speakers so the third age could dance a little before the bones crackle again. I remember the intense aromas of seafood, land food, served in delicious arrangements by my chef uncle Siosi, and the protocol of serving the eldest to the youngest, the best pieces of meat, lobster, limu, seaweed, taro, ta'amu, yam, going out first. This is eternally the measure of a successful event in the islands. Was the food good, generous, and were you able to get extra takeaway packs for those who didn't make it to the event? You really just want another pack, but let's say it's for the ancestors, of course. I don't live in my village, more than half of my Ainga don't, but my brothers and I did grow up there for a few years when we were much younger. Mom moved back three years ago, and this anchoring always brings a rebalancing to what's going on in my life in Naram. My grandma has been an artist for her whole life, independent of the gallery system, supporting our expansive family relationships across lands, waters, airs, in a sovereignty that is care from the land, in a matriarchy that is love from the ancestors, in a binding of diasporic children that is making with the fruit of your labor what is denied from us in the capitalist system of our colonizers, who left but never leave our minds, spirits, bodies. The keys to our liberation are also found in the wisdom of the diaspora for all our people, more Samoans, like many indigenous archipelagic peoples, do not live on our lands and waters. Tina Matua reiterates her messages to me and my cousins in Samoan and in English. Don't forget me. Don't take too long to come home. I don't want to be buried already when you do. And the excited cackle when I respond in Samoan, O te alofa yate oitina, e oe.
1: Thank you again for that reading. It's such a beautiful text. Um, So this was commissioned by a special issue of C Magazine that was edited by Bush Gallery with Peter Moran and Tanya Willard. And after hearing it, I want to understand from you how writing a text like that, like its subject, its format um, came to be for you, knowing that it was gonna be presented as art criticism, like in a journal of art criticism, specifically in the exhibition reviews section.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, So the invitation from Peter and Tanya was to think about reviews of happenings, um, you know, community events and expressions of culture that don't normally make it into the review section of an art criticism uh, publication, and particularly to think about... um, the voices or the, the practitioners who don't make it into um, those kinds of uh, publications, these kinds of publications. And so I wanted to, I had recently come back from a trip to, uh, so it was very fresh in my mind when I wrote this, I think. Um, and I had had a conversation with Yukikihara on, on this most recent trip at the time. Um, who's representing Aotearoa New Zealand at the next uh, Venice Biennale. And she was like, oh, you should curate an exhibition of your grandma's work. Uh, You know, she's been involved in all of these different um, couture kind of competitions in the islands. And, you know, some of her work has been around, but she hasn't, you know, exhibited in the exhibition, you know, kind of in a more uh, regular gallery exhibition format. And I kind of wondered whether I really didn't think that it was something that she'd even want. um, And that, and I was thinking as well about how like do all of these artists who don't work within the um formal gallery system is their work is their work not valued or valuable because it's not legible to us in the same ways as say somebody who's art school uh who's an art school graduate so that was really um uh, important to me, and I think also she's uh she was ninety at the time and she lived another three years. And so I was just thinking as well that the impossibility of a task of summarizing or synthesizing somebody's practice over many decades, including prior to when you're born, in a culture of orality where very few like photographic or physical remnants from previous exhibitions and events and major works, for example, would would be existing. Um, yeah, so I, I thought about it as well in uh, how Partially also the impossibility of um, writing something critical about somebody as close as your grandmother, um, thinking about how what she does and what, sorry, what she did (laughs) was many other things besides kind of a gallery work. And I guess what I mean by that is that all of the things that I'm describing in the text uh, are really important to Samoans and other indigenous peoples of the Great Ocean like service to your community and family and land and ancestors. And then also that um, these things kind of exist in parallel and in conversation with the contemporary art world.
1: That kind of central interest in translation also comes out in what you're saying about whether your grandmother would even be interested in being presented in this contemporary art environment and how it works for you to present her in this environment and i wonder how legibility functions for you in terms of translation like i was really interested in reading the text in the words that you provide english translations for and the words that you don't like the one that you do seem to provide a translation for is vasa yeah which is sacred far reaching undulating relational space how does a translation like that come about
2: so Vasa lao is a term that i found in older records um, that is the same meaning as Vasa which is what most people use. Um, and Va is the sacred relational space between objects, between people, everything that is considered animate, which is everything in the Samoan worldview. And then Sa is sacred or the descendants of a place or uh, an ancestor. So it's like the it's com- uh, kind of combining these two really um, important concepts as well as the movement in lao lao or lolo where it's like um, like the waves undulating um, so the kind of undulation on und- the undulation in this translation is uh, my more poetic addition but uh, a lot of words that are in Samoan that exist in other languages such as Moana or um, Yeah, primarily around such a term where it's like it's used in Hawaiian, it's used in Maori, it's used in Tahitian and other uh, languages, but a lot of Samoans would kind of preference a term like Vasaloloa or Vasalaola. So it's interesting to me that um, kind of specificity or uh, the semantic shift over time where particular terms have been preferenced. And I'm sure that that, a big uh, influence on that has been the church translations of the Bible into Samoan and the kinds of terms that they chose in the 1800s.
1: When you are using your language in a field like the art world that's dominated by English, or at least a sort of Eurocentric language and knowledge system, and not just English, but sort of art language. Like there's a really interesting point in the text when you describe flotsam washing up on the beach as a debris installation. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm wondering how how does using your language within, a, within an English or an art field environment, how does that uh, kind of reflect back and affect how you use your language outside of it?
2: I think um, this is a great question. And um, part of my PhD research was to create a lexicon um, expanding the, the meaning of existing terms in Samoan. And these are kind of like um, for installation, for curator, for artist, for exhibition, exhibition history that's within a Western linear sense of time, not a, a cyclical Samoan sense of time. Um, so there are a lot of these terms that I workshopped and others, you know, the earlier kind of drafts of these, these kinds of terms that were discarded. Um, and most of these terms um, came into being as an artwork uh, language poster um, last year. Puna um, oa o upu, uh, which means like the, the wellspring of, of words or utterances. And so that's kind of, uh, I really took the prompt by um, Yamaji curator, Stephen Gilchrist, in his uh, 2013 or 14 essay, Indigenizing Curatorial Practice, which kind of really spearheaded uh, or kind of pushed me to um, apply to do a PhD and then to go down that path, Um, where in this essay, he really asks uh, folks to consider how our languages can be uh, deployed in the description, in the interpretation of our work, and so, mm-hmm. particularly as Samoans are a majority diasporic people, um, prim- you know, upwards of 200,000 in the U.S. and a few thousand in uh, Canada uh, and upwards of 200,000 in uh, New Zealand and I think around 100,000 in Australia, as well as uh, sorry, 250,000 across both sides of American Samoa and the independent state of Samoa. So we're quite, like, spread out and multiple generations um, kind of orbit the ancestral archipelago, but also others who have grown up in San Diego or Auckland or Sydney. So I think that the expression of the work that is made by Samoan artists, it has to still tie back to the language, even if the language um, is like pertaining to practices that uh, we are not, you know, kind of uh, continuing in our new homes. So thinking particularly around all the language uh, to do with the Lupe Pidgin. And so a lot of the proverbs and this really beautiful conceptual um, language uh, from the Lupe Pidgin and the hunting for the pigeon and the celebration of the pigeon, which has been decimated. So then what do we do with these expressions that we still have uh, and that are still used in oratory? But can we also uh, bring those into kind of analytical frameworks around our artworks. Um, Yeah, I was guessing primarily across the whole um, exercise of using Salmon language within an English text. I was really tired of seeing um, just like celebrations of difference that don't really have much depth um, and that don't kind of seek to challenge primarily using um, uh, French theorists in English translation for the interpretation Mm -hmm. of the world. There's so many more uh, knowledge traditions from around the planet that we can access in our day and age so yeah just wanting to create a small contribution in this way
1: i was interested when you were speaking about an idea of um cyclical time rather than linear time and i think that what i observe in the text is um with their use of the word before Is, is that maybe a way that you're trying to feed that kind of cyclical idea of time into the text? For me, it's sort of a strategy that seems to propel the text forward through a near history and through a present, but it also gives primacy to maybe an ancestral time.
2: Yeah. And I think um, I'm also trying to connect to a near future, you know, the recent future that's coming. and. I would say that a majority of Samoans and other indigenous peoples of the great ocean are ashamed of our pre-colonial histories because that's how the churches and Western centric knowledge systems, education systems um, have uh, brought us to, you know, not value what our ancestors lived through and to refer to it as the dark times. And then the coming of Christianity is the coming of the light. So it's like really thousands and thousands of years of culture is like, so it's quite a like um, a dichotomy because people also celebrate culture and particular practices as well. Apparently, Toi um, Olu um, Damon Salosa, who's an amazing Samoan historian um, at University of Auckland, he has said that based on his research, within a Gregorian year, we went from living by the Samoan lunar calendar and a very different sense of time, to Western time, so very you know very fast adaptation. So I'm quite like dubious of the, the actual potential to not I wouldn't say like decolonize English, but to hmm. mess around with the temporality of English. And um, some of the markers in Samoan phrases for an event passing are like two words, two sounds right at the end of a sentence, like up? is like something that you can put on the end of a sentence to say that it happened in the past, but wa can also be a present continuous uh, like gerundive kind of um, moment or feeling or concept. So yeah, I would agree that yeah, I'm trying to connect to an ancestral time, but also it's an impossible task when majority of Samoan art writing, uh, majority of Samoan literature, majority of Samoan intellectual life is happening in English. So I feel like there's always gonna be a tension with connecting to a time wherein our ancestors lived primarily in their language, in our language, but it was—they're not the same language. And of course, it's not saying that they were like super pure or whatever, and were tainted. Definitely not the contagion mentality. Culture changes, and they were across the ocean. You know, it was a highway, so there were relationships between First Peoples all along the coasts of what's now the Americas, East Asia, Australia. Um, and all the archipelagos in between. So I think, you know, there was always a kind of a multicultural encounter happening. And I wonder how you can kind of bring texts to be haunted by the absence of that knowledge um, or by the kind of violence of the borders of today, including like Greenwich Mean Time. I guess it's something that I'm quite invested in because also the international deadline splits the Samoan archipelago between yesterday and today, so one side, the American side, is yesterday, and you know, depending on when <laughs> the calendar hits. But you know, it's like just like a uh, Greenwich Mean Time, this like concept from Europe. They just put a line in the middle of the ocean, and then that has become hegemony. But that's the middle of our ocean, and that's the middle of our homelands.
1: I don't know if you want to talk about it, but you've brought up the passing of your grandmother. I wonder in this, yeah, this COVID time of kind of presentlessness and divisions and then describing her kind of beautiful birthday party what it is like to revisit this text
2: this is the first time that i've read aloud this text since she passed and i think like many people who would be listening to this many people around the world um we've experienced loss and especially the loss that is compounded by physical separation distance and kind of the only connection being through technology so like zoom you know zoom funerals and um facebook live um to funerals and weddings and things like that um so i think i was surprised i didn't cry actually um in reading this text but i i'm kind of quite proud that this is what Reading it now, it makes me think that this is perhaps the first introduction to Samoan art practice that readers of C Magazine might have. And I'm glad that it's, uh, you know, I'm quite honored and glad that it's my grandmother and her practice and that it's um, a work that takes, or that requires labor on the reader in terms of like going backwards and forwards between language terms and then trying to situate where the Samoan islands are. and I guess that's that kind of, that's the kind of relationship that I really hope to um, engender in my writing and curatorial and artistic practices, um, particularly because the work that is like you know conceptually legible um, to, say, a mainstream, it's not the same thing for island communities where. It becomes then illegible, you know, unless it's like social practice, then people are like, okay, yeah, well, that was a great feed. Uh, that was an artwork? Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> had your grandmother read the text?
2: She, she had a copy. I, get, I got a copy from Sim Magazine and uh, sent it to my mom in Samoa, and she read it to my grandma, and she saw herself in print which uh, was pretty great for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did your grandmother say anything about it? Or?
2: Yeah, she was really happy that uh, her work and her, you know, she, in that way she could travel to Canada. I wouldn't, like, speak on her behalf, but I think that over her life, language has been in flux and her English has gone from, you know, super fluent to less fluent depending on the context and her age as well. And, um And she kind of always used her art practice to supplement the income from um, working in factories or doing domestic labor. So I'm quite glad to have, you know, kind of written this text. And, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's like now she enters art history and it's just before she passed. Do you
1: see writing about art as a part of your artistic practice or do you see it as separate?
2: I see it more as part of my curatorial practice, and okay. the term, uh, the two terms that uh, we're using in Samoan currently, and in like a very small kind of group who are discussing this for curator actually, and for curatorial practice is tatuananga of fa'a lingata, which is tatua, uh, the uh, noun means, um, or sorry, is a verb that means to serve. So tatuananga is like service or um, assistance. And then is like a, is a display of images, likenesses, shadows. Um, so, this is kind of one term for curatorial practice. And I really wanted to imagine not coming from the Latin verb curare and to come mm. from a different verb um, or noun and to kind of think of it as within a culturally um, resonant way so that people didn't just translate curator as the manager. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) which is a you know and because also leadership in Samoan cultural context is very specific and you know having speaking rights um is something that's earned within extended family um, structures so i kind of wanted to show that this is an intercultural space um, with terms like that and then the other term is uh, leo leo o o measina and this term by was coined by liali ifano albert refiti who's a especially as an architect and art writer in Auckland. And I think Leo Leo means, um, it's like literally police officer, but I think it's also somebody who has voice and who is uh, managing space. And then Measina are the handiworks so of the fine things that we make with our hands and kind of reflect um, or connect to what the ancestors made. So anyway, just these, these two terms are for me like an example of, how we can bend our language to have contemporary meanings.
1: I'm interested in this idea of the base of the, of the word being service or assistance. Mm. Cause I think as I was taught, you know, as we're taught a million times and however many curatorial texts and schools that to curate means to care for.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I really took that concept and, you know, I, thought a lot about curare and also how, you know, the term curator or um, curation has become so ubiquitous and used by every other industry outside of our, our sector. And that it kind of can mean nothing and can mean so many things, but that the most transformational experiences of my life have been due to really the kindness, generosity and patience of many, um, Black, brown, white women curators and art historians who really made space for me and for others to kind of excel and you know sacrifice a lot across Australia and uh, Canada and uh, New Zealand, Hawaii as well in the different projects I've been part of. So yeah, I I hope that those kinds of terms can enter, can be used more often, um, and that we can kind of. I just it's like basically I I see writing as a service to the community and when. Our art practices or our artists aren't as visible then these texts have a particular role to play,
1: yeah, I think this idea of uh earning speaking rights and and I'm combining that with this idea of a curator built into the word of a curator a job description as an idea of care, but you know I find that too very rarely be the case mm-hmm. um and maybe the way that you're situating or or creating a new way of thinking about the term is that uh, it's aspirational.
2: Definitely. (laughs) I think uh, (laughs) when you read position (laughs) descriptions and you see, I mean, I think if any of us read care in there in this current moment, um, it would have to be, you know, qualified, nuanced, and have some accountability, accountability measures uh, included. Right. Uh, we're, we're, you know, it's, it's also, am uh, definitely at the cynical, um, period of my career.
1: <laughs> so, do you like writing?
2: I like writing a lot, even though the dissertation writing process was so painful. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't stay, seem to stop thinking about more the more books we need and and that joy and especially uh, my first PhD supervisor, primary supervisor, Tara McDowell. She. Uh, really emphasize to myself and the others in my, in our cohort to think about writing for our PhD and for our curatorial texts, like to really kind of focus on the joy that we get from writing. Um, and then, you know, obviously that pre- uh, includes a whole lot of really great time management and other aspects that will mean that we have the joy of writing uh, all the ingredients for the joy of writing. And also I like, I'm, I'm kind of, Uh, embarking on a poetic practice. I'm doing a a poetry fellowship in a few months. I'm going to be working on my first collection, which actually kind of a lot of the poetry that I've written for live performance will be kind of migrating into into that collection. So there's kind of a... I I kind of see, obviously, like poetry from performance in artistic practice. Um, And then reviews, um, essays, and more speculative texts, um, I see as part of what what artists can do, of course, and do, but that I think when you're a curator and you have to do so many other aspects for a project to come to fruition, you have a particular vantage point and uh, a lot to offer.
1: I'm going to diverge from the rapid-fire questions as I'm really interested in this idea of bringing um, work that you presented live and bringing it into a print form how is that working is that a difficult process or is it is it happening
2: smoothly um i i have uh kind of published some poetry from performances in uh in uh, different kind of writing uh sorry like in art publications and things but um to put a whole... Yeah, I think it's... Uh, I'm really struggling with thinking about how the orality, how my voice or how other voices can be present in a text when I have no idea um, the cultural baggage of the reader and yes. the understanding or experience with multiple languages. Yeah, so I think that's going to be a good challenge for the writing process. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then do you see the the kind of goal of of publishing in print is it the same kind of thing that you were talking about in terms of uh like bringing this kind of practice into into like the lexicon of art history or or making it become part of that uh the part part of that discourse
2: definitely yeah i think also that my first love um was literature um poetry Mm. and literature and i really saw myself um going down that path of like liter- literary studies, which is, uh, I focused my honors thesis on um, the first indigenous novelist from uh, Vanuatu, who wrote in French, uh, Marcel mertil and a settler novelist from New Caledonia, Nikola And then I kind of diverged after that um, and moved more into visual arts and writing for art and for thought. And I, I think that poetry has kind of always been some kind of home but a very particular poetry that's like uh queer indigenous differently able like kind of speaking Mm -hmm. from intersectional positions um and i am nervous about kind of making contribution that comes from my um more you know performative ritualistic kind of practice in visual arts uh in and kind of making a foray into literary circles hopefully they'll let me in
1: (laughs) When do you write?
2: Mm. I write um, emails in the morning and I write texts in the afternoon and into the evening and sometimes late at night, but primarily in the afternoon um, is the ideal time. And I used to write a lot on planes
1: before COVID. Mm. I I, uh, took a class with Gerald McMaster um, in my grad school, and I'll always remember he was saying that the only place – well, I don't know about the only, but he said that way he got all of his writing done on a plane and he made the shape of the, of the plane seat with his body. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you can't move. You have to write.
2: <laughs> so true. And, you know, before they introduced Wi Fi on planes, it was great. <laughs> yes. Um, you yes. get so much thinking and thinking through problems and then revisiting and um, things that in, when you're online, take so much time.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's also like that kind of different, it's a totally different headspace with the oxygen. And, you know, I always end up crying on a plane, or I'll start menstruating randomly. Like, it's always a very, uh, yeah, it's a perfect time to write, I think.
2: (laughs) I think particularly long-haul flights, which from Australia or from Samoa to anywhere, like the shortest cross-Pacific uh, journey, I think, is like 12 hours or 13 hours. Um, uh. So, you know, these are really long uh, voyages and still not as long as the, you know, ocean going ancestral time uh, uh. participants. But um, definitely, uh, you kind of get to pause. Now, I wouldn't say you pause capitalism, but you get to pause <sighs> the pressures of your like sedentary life um, uh-huh. and kind of have a little bit of distance from them. And I miss that. I don't miss the, you know, contributing to the downfall of humanity and this planet through plane travel (laughs) as much as I used to, but um, (laughs) I miss that. I miss that distance.
1: How much do you delete when you're writing? Do you edit as you go or do you edit after you've written?
2: Primarily I edit as I go. And I, maybe in 2015, started Fourteen, fifteen. I started sending drafts to particular friends to read through before I sent it to the folks that I was supposed to send the text to, to kind of have a layer of um, proofreading. And they sent to me as well. I definitely like to edit more than the write. The, the the writing I have to be super inspired. <laughs> it's very hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> It's funny. The next question is, do you ever write under the influence? But I feel like under the influence of air travel is something that we already discussed.
2: <laughs> I've I've written um, tipsy and drunk. Yes. Right. But I haven't written on anything else. I should try um, to write after having some coconut shells of kava. That would be, I think, aligned with the way that kava was used and is used in some parts of Oceania, but um, to kind of commune with the ancestors. But it's kind of also like a bar, a bar drink in many places.
1: What do you wear when you're writing or what is your situation? Do you have any kind of superstitions about how you you need to be in your body or in your space?
2: I wish I did. Uh the primary <laughs> I I'm uh from Salmon Islands, so I wear uh an eel lava lava or a sarong, um, all around the house all the time. And will often be wearing that, like the most comfortable, stretchy fabric, you know, and uh, or just like cotton. And I'm in a really hot place currently, so I end up riding uh, without a shirt on. But when I was in Montreal, I, you know, just get it into a really nice sweater and really comfortable, Mm -hmm. get some, you know, have a glass of wine and a a big tumbler of water ready to go and <laughs> some chocolate <laughs> okay we're in, we've got a session let's go
1: <laughs> you have to seduce yourself into yeah
2: definitely it. I was like oh and <laughs> definitely the you know like get through so many words and then you can have some ice cream totally the, I'm parenting myself
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I guess that's perfect to the next question which is how do you begin um how do you start a story
2: I think about um, the brief or the purpose um, for a very long time. And then I uh, read kind of adjacent related to texts and some poetry. Poetry usually helps me to kind of get into um, the narrative mode that will be needed. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I consume a lot of text and so my brain is like full of things. My heart is full of things and then I'm able to write.
1: And how do you know when a text is done?
2: Um, if I have doubts that it's done, but I've spent a lot of time on it, then it's usually done.
1: Which writer, dead or alive, would you most like to have a drink with?
2: Oh, um, can I name three?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: please.
2: <laughs> um, I always wanted to meet Danny Laferriere who's a Haitian, Québécois um, writer, uh, really famous and incredible, whose work I came across um, in undergrad in Brisbane in the East Coast of Australia, doing my BA in Indigenous Studies and French Cultural Studies. And then um, Chantal Spitz, who's the first Maui novelist, and she uh, wrote an incredible book called The Island of Shadow Dreams, L'île aux rêves écrasés*. Which really shook me, and, and yeah, it's like one of my favorite texts. And she got a lot of death threats at the beginning, and then much later, it's been celebrated. Um, and she's gone on hmm. to write other things, and she kind of really saw her work in literature as part of you know cultural resurgence. And I really hope that we can have that moment in Samoan as well. That we, I mean, we ha- we are um, having it in literature, and I think we're having it in artistic practice in the diaspora. But I don't know about it um, reaching the homelands in the same way yet. And the third person would be Marie Andre Gill, a poet who's uh, Innu, living north of Montreal. Whose work is very tender but strong, and whose work I have returned to a lot in the last um, six to nine months.
0: Hmm.
1: And which writer do you emulate the most?
2: I think Lana Lopessi, um would be close. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope I can write like her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I would also put. Um, in the previous question, I would put uh, Candace Hopkins, whose writing uh, is so articulate and beautiful. I guess I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure who I emulate, um, but I just know who I hold in high esteem and right. whose texts I return to often.
1: What is the text that you want to write, but you know that you
2: won't? <laughs> Uh, I would love to write like a full-on art philosophy book um, about queer performance in the islands and gender and time and visuality, like a, an opus kind of text. And then it would go between five languages, but center Samoan, or it would have Samoan in the middle of the page. And then these like translated passages in other languages would be either side in different columns. I think it's like a dream project that we'll probably never see the day.
1: Why not? It seems like you already have the, you already have the graphic design. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's because I'm an artist as well. It's the, uh, the curse of seeing it. Even I, uh, I just think um, I don't know if I have that in me after this year, after a lot yeah. of the things that happened to all of us. Um, I think some of those more pipe dream projects um, have gone into a different category in my head. I think I still feel really positive and optimistic about the future, but I'm not sure I think this is maybe a book that I can maybe aspire to throughout my life.
1: I'm interested in that. You think that that's the kind of book or these kinds of opus books don't don't necessarily have a place in the in the near future. What kind of writing do you think that the near future necessitates?
2: I think whilst I hold more academic intellectual texts in high esteem and I, you know, work and write in that way as well, I think we need more writing that's that draws on personal narrative and can speak across bounds of, you know, structural oppressions um, to kind of impart the urgency of different kinds of being and knowing in this world and in different worlds uh, within this planet. And that perhaps some of the more obfuscated registers of language in different languages, as well as in English aren't the most useful for the next like three years. And whilst I, you know, I guess I'm also in, uh, I grew up in Australia as well and it has a rampant anti-intellectual kind of phenomenon happening here. And, um, I'm not sure if that's like me or if that's how I'm conditioned because I grew up here.
1: Hmm. The final question is, what is the pleasure of writing to you? But I feel like you're the first person I've spoken to doing these questions that has kind of made it very clear that you do find writing very pleasurable. like that question, do you like writing? The fact that you answered yes is unprecedented.
2: <laughs> <laughs> really? It's like yes. painful, but it's like the most um, beautiful, you know, like not many, I'm the first person in my extended family to study as far as a PhD level and now postdoctoral research uh, as well. And some of my cousins um, are doing master's or have recently finished master's. Um, but that kind of, that gift of time and place and capacity to work on research in a really sustained longer term way, Um, you know, very particular to a PhD, um, but also in writing fellowships and art writing mentorships and things, I think is such a gift. I think that I, and whenever I'm having an existential crisis, I'm like, well, all I can do is write. (laughs) Don't even know if it's that good. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that um, the, the joy that I feel in writing, I don't find as much joy in like seeing it in print, although that is a really joyful moment. I think it's the creation, similar to artists, in a, I think in a studio, when you finally just bring some of these juices together and then you have a thing. Um, that's that's amazing to me. And I'm like, how do we create? What? How does this even happen? It's It's crazy, it's amazing. Yeah, I feel like you struggle and then you create something and then you do it again. And um, (laughs) all of the deadlines don't really give enough space to how beautiful these kind of writing processes are. But, you know, you do need balance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: So that's the end of the questions. But I usually like to ask if when, um, was there anything that you really wanted to discuss that you feel like we haven't covered?
2: I'm just really aware that, as I said earlier, this text might be kind of the first introduction or glance into Samoan visual culture and art history and hope that more texts like that can be written and that Samoan art practice can be understood better outside of the confines of being seen as specific art or art from a faraway place.
0: Momus the podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Mitra Shiram. This season's music is written by Ulysses Castellanos.
1: We would like to thank Leah Leah Shragi for IA's contribution to this season. And a special thanks to all of you who are supporting the podcast.
0: You can find us at patreon.com slash momusart. We're a small team working in a hard hit year. So if you can spare a donation every month as small as $1 or $5, it genuinely makes a difference.
1: This has been episode 28 of Mamas the Podcast.